take our Bibles and turn in them to the book of Isaiah, chapter 23 and 24 today. Thank you for being with us today online uh, or here live. It's not Memorex. Remember that old commercial? Is it live or is it Memorex? Some of you are like, what is he talking about? Others of you are like, oh yeah, I got you with that. The title of the message today, The Devastation of the Great Tribulation. Let's take our hearts to the Lord. Father, once again, we just say thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy, your willingness to speak to us individually and collectively as a body. Lord, it's our desire to uh, uh, be in step and in stride with your spirit. So give us ears to hear you today. Uh, Move and minister, God. May your word resonate in us, bring forth fruit in us for the glory of your name. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand something, and that is this. Life and liberty are not privileges extended to us by our government. They are rights graciously granted to us by God. And it's very important that we not be confused on this issue. For 10 straight chapters, as God declares judgment upon nation after nation after nation, if one thing becomes apparent or comes into focus for us, it's the fact that he is the one that we are to look to and trust in exclusively if as a nation, we want to experience things like security, prosperity, and liberty. Those things are not granted to a nation as a result of advanced technology or a brilliant uh, economic strategy, uh, having the planet's greatest military, or making tactical alliances politically. They're granted as a result of God's gracious sovereignty and acknowledging in humility our dependence upon Him. Listen, for everything. The prideful, self-resilient, or self-reliant nations, God humbles and brings low. The humble who want to honor God, he will in due time raise up. God, not man, is in control. And here in chapter 23, God addresses the ancient Phoenician empire. Now, some of you may remember back in school or in high school, if you're still there, uh, in your world history books, the, you know, the Phoenician Empire and, and you know, the Babylonian Empire. And, of course, Tyre was the capital of Phoenicia. Now, if you look at uh, the map today, uh, the Phoenician Empire was essentially uh, the uh, country of, of Lebanon. Is it Lebanon or Lebanon? Is it, is it tomato, tomato, or is it genuinely like Lebanon or Lebanon? <laughs> it's like Lebanon. Ah. Yeah, like you guys are confused. Some of you are saying Lebanon, some of you are saying Lebanon. Let's just go with, you know what I'm saying. Uh, so let's turn our attention to verse 1, chapter 23. The burden against Tyre. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste, so that there is no house, no harbor from the land of Cyprus. It is revealed to them. Be still, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon, uh, whom those who cross the sea have filled, and on great Waters the grain of Sheor or Shihor, however you say. The harvest of the river is her revenue, and she is a marketplace notice for the nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken. The strength of the sea, saying, I do not labor nor bring forth children, neither do I rear young men nor bring up virgins. And when the report reaches Egypt, they also will be in agony at the report of Tyre. Now, uh, to kind of 
help you gather your thoughts here, the Phoenicians were a famous seafaring people, and they established colonies all throughout the Mediterranean. And Tyre was basically the epicenter uh, of the known world's trading all throughout the Mediterranean region. You might consider Tyre the eBay, the Amazon, all rolled up into one of the ancient world, okay? And 2 Samuel chapter 5, King David had dealings with the king of Tyre, and the king of Tyre had built a house for David out of the cedar trees that he provided. He sent contract laborers, he sent masons, uh, all at his expense. In 1 Kings chapter 5, after after David had died, the king of Tyre floated cedars in rafts down to Solomon uh, to aid in the building of the temple. And so, you know, there were some good things that came out of Tyre, but there was also plenty of bad. Uh, in fact, later on, Tyre would give to King Ahab one of the worst things that could have ever happened to Israel, uh, a wife by the name of yeah, you guys, come on, guys. It was Jezebel, right? Uh, but ultimately, what we need to see through this section of Scripture is that Tyre represents big business, commercialism, materialism. Verse 3, the harvest of the river is her revenue, and she is a marketplace for the nations. And again, in many ways, we can't help but see, can we, the parallels between what's being said here and our own nation. Family, if materialism, commercialism isn't prevalent in the United States today, I don't know what is. You know, the dollar says, in God we trust. But truth be told, it's more accurate to say, in the dollar we trust. Uh, people have come to the place where they put their security in technology or in their prosperity. Uh, all we need to solve our problems is just a little more money. But God will teach Tyre what we do well to realize, and that is you can place your trust in money, but money won't deliver you on the day of wrath. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 4, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. And the funny thing about money is that it can be here today and gone tomorrow. You know, you can be taken from prosperity to poverty, and then where will you be? Guys, look how far our nation has fallen in just two years. Uh, food prices are up. Uh, interest rates are up. Gas prices are up. Uh, inflation is spiraling out of control. A recent poll, June of this year, showed that 61% of Americans are now living paycheck to paycheck. As of August of this year, 20 million households in America, about one out of six, have fallen behind on their utility bills, and the amount that they owe has doubled since before the pandemic, which will trigger, according to the article that I was reading, uh, something termed as a tsunami of shutoffs. What's my point? Don't place your trust in money. The Bible says, will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. How many of you have been feeling like your, your riches kind of sprouting wings and flying away over the last several months? It's like, a go, oh, they're the, going, going, they're gone. You know, kind of a thing. Keep confidence in the Lord. 
God would teach the city of Tyre and judge them, not because of their prosperity, but as we'll see, because of the pride that festered in them as the result of it. God says here that it would be totally, completely annihilated. In verse 1, it is laid waste. There is no house, no harbor. And then Isaiah mentions these various harbors or port cities hearing of its destruction all over the ancient world and wailing as a result. Tarshish, that's in Spain. Uh, Shior or Shior is uh, down around Egypt. He mentions the island of Cyprus. These are all like spread out throughout the Mediterranean, across the Mediterranean Sea. Phoenician colonies trying to process the annihilation of their homeland. The merchants taking this crippling blow uh, economically and just weeping and wailing at, at what's happening, you see. And in verse 6, he says, cross over to Tarshish, wail you inhabitants of the coastland. Is this your joyous city whose antiquity is from ancient days, whose feet carried her afar off to dwell? Who has taken this counsel against Tyre, the crowning city whose merchants are princes, whose traders are the honorable of the earth? The Lord of hosts has purposed it to bring to dishonor the pride of all glory, to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. You see, in other words, it wasn't nobility, it wasn't honor, it wasn't integrity that established you as a leader in Tyre. You just needed money. The merchants are her princes. The traders are the honorable. If you did well in business, man, if you made a lot of money, you were a person of power and influence. You were someone, uh, pardon me, I don't know why that's doing that. You were someone of importance. Uh, Now, what's the quick take home here? It's not that making uh, a lot of money is bad. It's when you allow the fact that you have more than others to make you think that you're somehow above others or better than others. You let success inflate pride in your heart. That's the problem. There is nothing that will set God against us faster than pride. Why? Because all sin, guys, all sin at its core is rooted in some element of pride. Even if it's simply to say, I don't have to do what God would have me to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. You see, I'm elevating my wants and my ways against what God says, what he wants and his ways. That's pride. We read in the book of Proverbs, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Notice a proud look. It's first on the list. It's chief among them. Now, if you want to know what the other six are, write it down, look it up yourself. I ain't doing all the work for you. But again, 1 Peter in chapter 5, and be clothed with humility for God, notice, resists the proud or sets himself against the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, do you want God against you or do you want God's grace for you? You see what I'm saying? This is like a, yeah, it's not like a no-brainer. Therefore, what do you do? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Think about it like this. Do you feel like you deserve to be first in line? Or are you okay if you're last in line? 
do you kind of feel like you should be served? Or are you one who serves? You know, there you are, you're walking out of a restaurant and someone's coming behind you, so you graciously hold the door for them and they walk out, they don't even acknowledge you. They just keep going, you're like, that happened to me the other night. There I am, I'm holding the door, my family is, is coming behind me, and I'm holding the door, you know, trying to be the, the guy God's called me to be, just a little thing, you know, you're holding it there, and then you see a family behind them, and then they walk through, and, and then you see someone else who's like six or ten steps behind them, but obviously with them, and so you're like, okay, I'll just keep holding it, and they walk through, and they just kind of, I'm like, who's this guy I think I am? And the Lord's like, well, he thought you were a servant, you know, was he wrong? Yeah. And, and that's the kind of mentality that we have to like, you know, you know you have a servant's heart when you're treated like one. You know, how do you respond when you're treated like one? Think about that. Listen, God isn't impressed with how much money we make, with how much clout it brings us, or the platform it gives us. Man looks to the outward appearance God searches the heart. God was going to humble the self-imposed glory of Tyre. Look at verse 10. Overflow through your land like the river, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no more strength. He stretched out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms. The Lord has given a commandment against Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, you will rejoice no more, O you oppressed virgin of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. There also you will have no rest. Behold, the land of the Chaldeans, this people which was not. Assyria founded it for wild pardon me, founded it for wild beasts of the desert. They set up its towers. They raised up its palaces and brought it to ruin. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste. Okay, quick history lesson here. The Chaldeans was another ancient name for the Chaldeans. Right? We got Jeopardy song. We like you guys got 60 seconds to get it figured out. The Babylonians. Okay? So the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, essentially one and the same. Uh, God would use the Babylonians, he says here in verse 13, the Chaldeans, to defeat the mainland city of Tyre. Now the Assyrians, notice, he mentions them too. They took a whack at it a time or three. If my uh, little lesson in history doesn't, uh, you know, fail me. And they would do some damage, but ultimately it would be the Babylonians who truly brought the mainland city of Tyre down. And it would be after a 13-year siege. The Babylonian, Bab- you know, they sieged the city of Tyre for 13 years. Now, now then they would go and do a little campaign. They would come back and do all this kind of stuff. But, but, but the, during the time of the siege where the Babylonians surrounded the city of Tyre, guys, think about that, for 13 years, 
Uh, they were there. But during that time, the Phoenician city of Tyre relocated. You see, here's the thing. They were like a port city. They were like a beach city. So they had walls that went all around the city and then extended out into the Mediterranean Sea. So they could still receive ships and merchants coming in from the seaport, but no one could get in from the land. And so they were kind of like doing okay, even though Babylon was poised and posed against them for 13 years. And while, they, while Babylon was kind of uh, trying to starve them out or uh, somehow squeeze them out, what they did is by ship they took and they rebuilt out on an offshore island the entire city, and it was like half mile, mile off the, off the seashore. And so eventually after 13 years, uh, Nebuchadnezzar took the city, but when he went in, there was essentially no one and nothing there. It was kind of a hollow victory. And he didn't have like this naval branch of a military or anything, not to speak of, so he couldn't reach them out on the island, you see. Now, if you read Ezekiel chapter 26, you can write that down, you can read it later. Ezekiel goes into detail about the downfall of Tyre. And he says, they will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. Think about what he just said. And I will put an end to the sound of your songs and the sound of your harp shall be heard no more. In other words, Tyre was going to slip through the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, but not through the hands of God. In 332 B.C., you history buffs already know this, in his determination to conquer the known world, Alexander the Great, literally, almost like he read the scripture and went, that's a good idea. He literally tore the city apart and had the debris from the city pushed into the sea. He built a causeway out to the offshore island and destroyed it, just as God said it would happen. One of, those, um, one of those proof texts of prophecy that people like to point to because it was fulfilled so accurately down to the detail and was prophesied a few hundred years in advance, you see. Now, in verse 15, um, it says, Now it shall come to pass in that day that Tyre will be forgotten 70 years according to the days of one king. They go into captivity. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as it, in a, the song of the harlot, uh, take a harp, go about the city, you forgotten harlot, make sweet melodies, sing many songs that you may be remembered. In other words, the city was going to be desolate for 70 years, then it would begin to do business again, kind of like an old harlot coming out of retirement or something, <laughs> engaging with the kingdoms of the world once more, you see. Just all the nations and everything doing business again like it did before. And in verse 17, and it shall be at the end of 70 years that the Lord will deal with Tyre. She will return to her hire, uh, Tyre for hire, and commit fornication. Yeah, it's one of those just doesn't have to come out here even though it comes in here, but it did. Fornication with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. And her gain and her pay will be set apart for the Lord. It will not be treasured nor laid up for her, uh, laid up for her gain will be for those who dwell before the Lord to eat sufficiently and for fine clothing. So God speaks of the day when the wealth of the region will be used for the purpose and plans of the Lord. It, now it seems to me now there is some rich Christian history in that uh, region, but ultimately I believe just like we learned with Assyria and Egypt uh, and Israel that this would be and will be, I believe, fulfilled ultimately when Jesus rules the earth. Now, again, I could be wrong with that. This could certainly find fulfillment historically, but it will definitely take place prophetically in the millennial kingdom. 
But kind of the takeaway in this last verse here is that we serve a God who redeems, who takes what man or the enemy means for evil and can use it for good. That where sin abounds, grace abounds still more. Now, having said that, there's only so much time, okay, that grace is available. And when the age of grace, the dispensation, the theologians like to say, the dispensation of grace or the age of grace comes to a close, his wrath will be poured out upon a Christ-rejecting, Christ-refusing world. That's chapter 24. Isaiah moves us on now from this nation or that nation, we're kind of coming to a close of the, the burden against this nation and that nation section of Isaiah. But now Isaiah speaks of the day when the Lord will pour out his wrath upon every nation uh, during what Jesus referred to as the great tribulation. That final seven-year period of human history that we deduce from the book of Daniel in which God will turn his attention back to the nation of Israel just prior to the return and reign of Christ upon the earth. Now during this time, this last seven-year period, the first three and a half years of this last seven years will actually seem to be pretty incredible. There will be a pseudo peace in the Middle East. There will be a time of global prosperity under the leadership of one man. But three and a half years into his reign or his dictatorship or however you want to say it, he will go into the temple, the Bible declares, that was to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. He will there declare himself to be God. He will demand that he is to be worshiped as God. And that will trigger, it will trigger this series of events leading to the devastation and tribulation upon the earth such as the world Jesus said has never seen, no, nor will ever see. And so with that, let's turn our attention uh, into the 24th chapter. You guys still with me? Okay, then let's go. I appreciate the zeal. Got one zealot among us. Hey, that's what I'm talking about what I'm calling for. Let's all give it a combined woo. <laughs> Thank you for that. All right. Verse one, behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, <clears throat> distorts its surface <clears throat> and scatters abroad its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor, and the land shall be entirely emptied and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. So one of the first things that Isaiah draws our attention to with regard to the outpouring of God's wrath upon the earth is the universal, inescapable nature of it. Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste. And Isaiah makes it clear, ladies and gentlemen, in no uncertain terms, that position, power, wealth, none of these will offer any protection against the wrath of God. 
the people, the priest, the master, the servant, the maid, the mistress, the creditor, the debtor, the lender, the borrower, the buyer, the seller, there are no exceptions. God is going to devastate the earth, you understand? When the great tribulation is taking place upon the earth, when there are 40, 50, 60 pound hailstones pummeling the planet, listen to me, no one is going to care who makes the most money or who lives in the biggest house or who has the nicest car. Everyone will be equally distressed, you understand? And they'll eventually come to a place where they're actually praying for death uh, rather than be subjected to what's happening, but death will flee from them. This is what the Bible teaches. God will not allow them to die on their terms, uh, only on His. John tells us in the book of Revelation chapter 9, in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. Guys, that's a little ways into the tribulation and, you know, even past where the outbreak begins in the, in the third, three and a half year kind of point. Initially, death will come like a tsunami to mankind in a manner that this world has never seen. Listen to me, billions will die. War will break out. Rioting, looting, shooting will break out. Famine pestilence, disease, sweeping through various regions, killing millions. By the time the fourth seal is broken in the book of Revelation, you remember this there, and guys, remember, I, I looked in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and he had the scroll that was written on the front and the back. It was sealed with seven seals, and I heard a voice saying, who is worthy to take the scroll and to open up its seals? And I looked, and there was none in heaven or on earth or under the earth, and so I began to weep. John said that as he was sobbing convulsively because no one was found worthy, and then the angel spoke to him and said, don't weep, John, for look, behold. And he said, and I looked, and there was in the midst of the throne and in the elders a lamb as though it had been slain, and it went forth and he took the scroll from the hand of him who sits on the throne and he begins to break the seals guys in other words what I'm saying is that when the fourth seal this is the first initial outpouring of of wrath of judgments there are we haven't gotten to the bowl judgments we haven't gotten to the trumpet judgments you know uh, by the time the fourth seal is broken a fourth of the earth's population is destroyed you're looking at the death of approximately two billion people if it were to happen today a little while later when the sixth trumpet sounds God releases the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates, and they kill another third of mankind, which brings the death count to over half of the earth's population. Over four billion people will die. And again, we haven't included the bold judgments. Uh, we haven't included the trumpet judgments, the cataclysmic upheavals, the cosmic disturbances. And that's why Isaiah says, the Lord makes the earth empty makes it waste and distorts its surface. Man will be scattered. They'll become like an endangered species, you see. A quick side note, this is another reason that we hold to a pre-tribulation rapture position. 
because the Bible is clear that God has not appointed us, you and me, those in Christ, God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5. Now some think that God will preserve the church through the tribulation, but family, let's, let's not forget what we just read. Let's not disconnect the context of the entirety of Scripture. Isaiah makes it clear there are no exceptions. Maid, mistress, creditor, borrower, lender, you know, all, all, what is it? No, creditor, debtor, lender, borrower, priest, whatever P goes with that, people, <laughs> right? It, it just doesn't matter. There are no exceptions. The judgments are universal in their scope, okay? So it makes more sense that God would remove his redeemed prior to the outpouring of his wrath. As Jesus said, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to, what's the word? Endure. What is it? Escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now who might that be who will be found worthy to escape? to be caught up in the clouds, to be with the Lord, and there we shall always be with him. Well, those who are found in Christ, those whom God has redeemed and covered in his righteousness. And, you know, we could develop the reality of the rapture further, but for time's sake, we'll just leave it at that. You have two choices with that. You can take my word for it, or you can do your own research and come to your conclusion based upon what the word of God teaches, okay? I encourage the latter. You can trust me with the former. Famous last words. I encourage the latter, right? Know the word of God. This is the thing, guys. Know not only what you believe, but know why you believe it. Does that make sense? In other words, there are going to be good guys. Eh, there are none that are good. You know what I'm saying, though. There are going to be guys that have no ill intent, such as myself, is what I mean, that are going to try and we're going to teach you, we're going to instruct you, we're going to get... But ultimately, ladies and gentlemen... It's, it's up to you. I can tell you what you need to believe. I can even teach you why you need to believe, but I'm saying ultimately it's personal accountability. You have to stand before God and know not only what but why, okay? So equipping the saints, verse 4. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth language, language, languish. And the earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. This is the why behind what is going to happen. Why does the earth mourn? Why? Why does the world languish? Why has the curse devoured the earth and left so few people to inhabit it? Because they, that is the inhabitants of the earth, have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, that is the rules and the regulations, and broken the everlasting covenant. Translation, because people refuse to submit to a God and insist on rebelling against God. Listen, you talk about changing the ordinances or the laws, the rules, the regulations. 
Even apart from the law, people sinned without the law. This is what the Bible teaches. Meaning that God, or pardon me, that man has always known it's wrong to lie. It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to murder. But people do these things anyway. They defile the earth and its inhabitants. They, our word is, transgress the laws. That is, they cross the line that God has established. People don't respect the word of God, the principles, the precepts that he's established for his creation. They want to live by the code. If it feels good, do it. You know, if you want to have premarital or extramarital sex, go for it. You want to be with someone of the same gender, have at it. If it's inconvenient for you to have a child, get an abortion. If you need to lie or sleep your way to the top, the end will justify the means. Feel free to get drunk or to get high if it'll make you feel better, if it'll help you cope with whatever your situation may be. There's simply no regard for the word of God. In fact, God says, they have changed the ordinance. It's not even that we no longer respect them. It's that we've changed them altogether. Listen, there was a time when all the things that I just mentioned to you were essentially, universally recognized as wrong. People just knew homosexuality is wrong. Promiscuity is wrong. Drug abuse, wrong. Lying, cheating, wrong. Now, not only do people refuse to concede that those things are wrong, those things are celebrated. Now, the Bible is clear. God hates divorce, but people have convinced themselves they're the exception. No, my spouse hasn't cheated on me. I can't really create a genuine case biblically, but I'm out. You know, we've changed the ordinances. We've made things lighter than they are, and it ripens the earth for judgment. But even beyond that, listen, every time a pastor or a preacher soft pedals the gospel, or the truth of God's word for fear of offense. Every time a politician twists scripture, oh my goodness, Newsom, quoting scripture to try and justify abortion in California, putting it on, on billboards in California, God help that man. But every time a politician would twist scripture to rise in the opinion polls, Every time a counselor would wrench the context of God's word to make it fit some weird psychological theory, that's changing the ordinance. And God is in the business of holding people accountable for what they say and do. The breaking of the covenant is bringing the curse. And so all these people who essentially worship the earth and think that mankind is the parasite and we're the problem and we, you know, all these things. That we're destroying the earth. The best thing they could do for the earth is give their life to Jesus Christ. It's the sin and wickedness of man that is, will bring the destruction of God upon the earth. Which tells us what? That God is separate from his creation. People, oh, well, God's in the trees. Well, God's in, no, God is separate from, from creation. God will bring the curse upon creation. The inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. You remember the promise that God made to Noah? God told Noah that he would never what? Flood 
the earth again. What's the coming judgment? Is it a flood? No, it's fire. You might write it down so you can look it up later. It's 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. But I'm always, I shouldn't be, but I continue to be just in awe of the continuity of Scripture. Because I would remind you that the Bible isn't a book that some guy a couple thousand years ago just sat down and decided to pin out. It's 66 separate writings pinned by 40 different human instruments over the course of about 1,500 years by men, some of whom spoke different languages, lived in different places. Yet, through the revelation and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they all speak in agreement. There's no other writing like the one that you're holding in your hands anywhere on the face of the earth. Now, in verse 7, new wine fails, the vine languishes, and the merry-hearted sigh, the mirth of the tambourine ceases, the noise of the jubilant ends, the joy of the harp ceases, they shall not drink wine with a song, strong drink is better to those who uh, drink it, Uh, pardon me, is bitter, not better, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The the city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may go in. There is a cry for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. In In the city, desolation is left, and the gate is destruction. The gate is stricken, sorry you guys, with destruction. When... It shall be thus in the midst of the land among the people. It shall be like uh, shaking, the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleaning of grapes when the vintage is done. In other words, joy will be gone, only judgment will remain. Does that make sense? Now again, I remind you of the urgency of the message of the gospel. Repent For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Jesus gave his life on the cross of Calvary to spare you this brutality to give you life eternally. God's judgment upon the earth will be like the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleaning of the grapevine. You know, the the olives are ripe. Uh, The berries are ready, and so they would just shake the tree violently so that all the berries would fall. But there would always be just a very few left that just would, you know, that which couldn't be shaken would remain. And the same with the grapevines, just stripped of everything. And Isaiah is telling us that's what the earth will be like at the end of the tribulation. Very few people left. Most will die in their sins. Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22. Again, the urgency of the gospel. This is what I'm trying to ignite in you guys. We don't want to see people die in their sins. God's not willing that any should perish. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord, but that the wicked would turn from their way and live. Well, how does God generally, primarily, I wouldn't say categorically, but typically, how does he reach the lost? Through you and through me. And so live boldly for Jesus Christ. Now, Some people have deceived themselves into thinking that if what guys like me say is true, if it's really true, then when it comes, you know, when this judgment comes, when this tribulation is happening, well, man, then I'll get serious about Jesus. Listen, 
If you can't live for Christ now, when it is comparatively easy, believe me when I tell you, you won't be able to then when it will cost you everything. Whoa, man, I'll just run and, 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 and I'll just give my life for Christ as soon as the rapture happens. No, you won't. If you can't live for Jesus now, you won't die for Jesus then. And I could make a strong argument that if you've heard the gospel and rejected it when, they, when the rapture happens, you're not going to be saved anyway. Those that will be saved in the tribulation, it's my personal persuasion, will be those who have not heard the gospel up to that point. There's billions of people on the planet today that have never heard the gospel. But the book of Thessalonians, Paul says that those who having refused the truth, those who've heard the truth, refuse the truth, will be given to the lie. God will send them a strong delusion that they might be given the lie, given over to the lie. In other words, when that door closes, the door is closed. That's why the Bible is clear. And you're free to disagree with me on that. That's my personal persuasion. I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong. But that's why the urgency goes out. Today is the day of salvation. If you'll hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Because I'm telling you, when that door closes, it's closed. Think of the, the parable of the virgins. Those who were ready went. Those who weren't ready, they didn't go. It didn't matter. They came back. They were banging on the door. It didn't matter, did it? I don't know. Guys, food for thought. These aren't things to clown around with. They're not, you know, you just can't. It's that whole, the, the greatest deception of Satan isn't that there's no heaven. It isn't that there's no hell. It's that there's no hurry. Verse uh, 14. Then shall, they, pardon me, they shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Therefore glorify the Lord in the dawning light. The name of the Lord God of Israel in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we have heard songs. Glory to the righteous. But I said, I am ruined, ruined. Woe to me. In other words, Isaiah's like, I can't join in. This is killing me. The judgment that's coming is devastating me. The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Indeed, treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. So though there will be those who come to know the Lord, like I said. There will be million, there will be a revival unparalleled uh, during the great tribulation. I'm just not persuaded it's from those who have heard previously. I think it's going to be those who've never heard, you know, whatever. But they'll recognize the righteousness of God's judgment and praise Him even in the midst of all of it as His majesty and glory is displayed really most prominently in dealing with the wicked in, in righteousness. Um, verse 17 Fear and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth, and it shall be that he who flees from the noise of fear of the fear shall fall into the pit, and he who comes up from the midst of the pit shall be caught in the snare, for the windows from on high are open, and the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now, to keep it short and simple, this is the inescapable nature of God's judgment. If you flee from the fear, you'll fall into the pit. If you come out of the pit, you'll be caught in the snare. We might say that the judgment of God has plenty of contingencies, if you'll allow me, uh, to catch everyone. No one will escape. The only escape from the judgment of God is to satisfy it. 
And the only place God's judgment can be and has been satisfied was at the cross. And so God is after you, isn't he? God is chasing you. He's chasing after you right now. He pursues you because he wants you to receive his grace and mercy. But if you don't stop running and receive it, his judgment will catch up to you. You see how that works? You can't outrun him. It's not a matter of if he catches you. It's only when. And that's up to you. Okay? Now, in verse 19... The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it and it will fall and not rise again. Now, people have experienced major localized earthquakes. They're devastating. But Revelation 16, 18 tells us that an earthquake is coming unlike this world has ever seen. Isaiah says the entire earth will reel to and fro. Guys, unparalleled cataclysmic upheavals. Verse 21, and uh, we're going to close here in just a minute. So if you're coming up, that'd be great. Verse 21 And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host, notice, of exalted ones. And on earth, notice the distinction, the kings of the earth. And they will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in the prison. And after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. So verse 21 actually brings into focus for us the judgment that takes place just prior to the millennial reign. We've been talking about the tribulation, the devastation, and then comes the judgment just prior uh, to the restoration of the earth that the Lord will uh, bring to pass before he reigns. It says the host of exalted ones. Guys, this is a reference to fallen angels. This is a reference to Satan himself. Notice he distinguishes the kings of the earth from the host of exalted ones. They'll be gathered and thrown into the pit, the Bible teaches, shut up for a thousand years. Why do you think the Bible says that they'll be in the pit for a thousand years? Because Christ will be ruling and reigning on the earth for a thousand years. Now at the end of the thousand years, the Bible teaches that Satan and his angels, the demons, will be released once more. Now why? Well, because during the millennial kingdom, those born in the kingdom won't really have had the opportunity to exercise their free will in serving the Lord. There's, and so God will release them. There will be the opportunity, you see, to choose to serve, to re or to refuse Jesus. And the Bible teaches that Satan will go about deceiving the nations. I don't know the time frame, how long it takes. The Bible doesn't say that. Is it a year? Is it a hundred years? I don't know. But he will deceive the nations. The Bible says that as many as the sands of the seashore will surround the city of Jerusalem. They'll want to destroy the Lord. They'll come against the Lord and fire will fall from heaven and consume them all. They will be devoured. And then the devil will be cast into the lake of fire and the great white throne comes down and judgment will ensue. And all whose names are not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. Or as we see in verse 22, they will be punished. Then a new heaven and a new earth A new Jerusalem. No need for the sun or for the moon, right? Verse 23. 
for the glory of God will illuminate it. And this is what awaits you who believe in Jesus Christ. Judgment for those who refuse him, mercy and glory for those who receive him. And so if you haven't, receive him today. Today is the day of salvation. Amen. Let's bow our hearts. God, we, uh, we need now more than ever the power of your Holy Spirit. God, you've called us to a time such as this, so I pray, oh God, that you would wake us up, that you would strengthen us to sound the alarm, to call others to repentance, to share the truth in love, God, that many might be saved. 